when you look at this first section, verses 14 through uh, down around verses 22, a couple of things stand out about the purpose of God. God has a purpose in everything. Some of it we can clearly understand. Some of it we will not understand until we get to heaven. Does everyone accept that? That some of God's purpose cannot... I know that some people have tried to write an answer for every single thing, but there's some things that you can't really answer. Though you can see the big picture, the really finite details. It's this way with prophecy, too. Some of the things you can see prophetically, you know what will happen, but you can't understand how it all comes together sometimes because you're too far away from the horizon. And some things, it's not just being far away from the horizon, it's we're man and he's God. As Job, I just read before, the, uh, before we uh, prayed, before the service, he does things that we can't comprehend. So that verse alone should tell you something. God does some things we can't comprehend. Can't. It's not possible that we can comprehend it. But we can understand the big picture of the purpose of God because the things that are said, this is why when you study the Bible, uh, you know, I remember talking to Sam Nadler a few years back and he's like, always start with the straightforward, what does the text say? And that's, where the, that's the first rule in understanding the Scriptures. What does the text say? And then what does it say elsewhere in the Scripture about the same text? And then you use the Bible to actually interpret the Bible. But when we look at the purpose here, several things, when we look at the God of Israel, what is the God of Israel doing? Well, we see a few things that are clearly mentioned as his purpose. In verse 15, now he's answering the question, by the way, this goes back to Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated that we covered last week. Jacob, of course, becomes the nation of Israel. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. And God eventually annihilated Edom. Edom was destroyed as a nation. Israel was disbanded as a nation, sent into exile for their own sin and wickedness. But as we know today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as currently the leader of Israel is back today as a nation, which took place after World War II in 1948. So we know that um, we know that at the same time God deals harshly with Jacob, which is Israel. Edom is completely destroyed. Jacob was the nation of promise, just like uh, Isaac was the son of promise. Right? Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was not the son of promise. Ishmael was not God's chosen, nor did Ishmael choose God. Whereas Jacob was God's chosen, and Jacob also chose God. Now, he's answering the question, is there not unrighteousness with God? Because Paul is already, either he's already been fielding questions from people in Rome, or he's anticipating questions they might get. Well, if God is sovereign... Didn't he just pick some for destruction and didn't he pick some for his glory and, and to, to lavish his love and mercy on? And if God was to pick winners and losers, in, in essence, those that would be damned and those that would be saved, um, they're asking, is that really, or could, could the question be posed by those in Rome 
uh, does that mean that God is not righteous? And he says, certainly not. <laughs> God never sins. God never makes a mistake. God has created mankind with a will, and God is holy, and God is just, and God is righteous. And he says here in verse 15, the first purpose, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. Throughout history, God has shown mercy and compassion in abundance when mankind didn't deserve it. Go all the way back to the flood. Uh, Jesus says that as, the, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the days of the Son of Man. So as we get closer to the return of Christ, we know that the world is full of wickedness, full of immorality, full of godlessness, full of men making laws and decisions that actually shut God out, which is kind of foolish because God is everywhere. But nevertheless, in their minds, they shut God out. And this is the way it was all the way back in the days of Noah. Uh, not only in the days of Noah uh, did they actually have the evidence. I mean, for, for much of uh, the time before the flood, Adam was alive. So most of the world could actually, you know, a good portion of people could actually visibly say, there's the guy that God actually created, and yet they still rejected God. So for you know, hundreds of years, Adam was right there in the presence of mankind, and yet they rejected. But God showed a lot of long-suffering for the world up until that point, didn't he? Uh, the world had to get to the place that it was so wicked, so violent, so full of wickedness that God finally poured out judgment. But he did show mercy on one family, didn't he? Because if he doesn't show mercy on that family, none of us are here, right? <laughs> if that family isn't shown mercy, my family isn't here, your family isn't here. We all descend from, no matter what you look like, we're all descendants from Noah and his wife, all of us, and three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Mercy and compassion, as far as God has ever, uh, as far as we've ever seen in the history of mankind and God working the lives of men, He's had mercy on compassion on whomever he's desired. And that mercy and compassion is the first purpose of God. He's always showing mercy and compassion. That even in rebellion, even in Esau being judged or Pharaoh being judged, he's still showing mercy and compassion to another group that still doesn't deserve it. Every time God shows mercy and compassion, it's to someone who doesn't deserve it. That's all of us, right? I don't just look at the decisions our nation's making and shake a finger. We have to pray for them because we used to be in the same mental boat. We were in the same place that, you know, we just did whatever we thought felt right. Every man in the scriptures taught doing that which is right in his own eyes. So if God would show mercy and compassion to anybody, it shows that one of his purposes is to extend mercy, extend compassion to mankind. We see, he goes on in verse 17, verse 16, uh, then, then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In verse 17, for the scripture says, says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show what? My power in you and that my name may be declared. We see another purpose of God here. God purposes throughout history to display his power and his great name. I just mentioned the Noahic flood. 
my brother sent me a beautiful uh, picture that he had taken on his camera phone. Uh, I think he sent it to me Monday morning, uh, and he was out at the kicker's soccer game, and it was just gigantic rainbow that went straight over the stadium. And it was all pink hue under the rainbow and all blue over the top of it. And uh, I texted him back and said, what day did you see that? Because the ladies had just gotten back. A couple of the ladies had left their cars at our house. Uh, and they had just gotten back from the women's conference. Uh, and they came into our house. And, uh, and they were in there before they were back to get back in their cars. And sometime while they were in there, happened, we had some coffee out. We had a cup of coffee. Sometime I go and open the front door. I said, y'all got to come here. There's a rainbow. Everyone thought I was just going to say some little tiny. You walked out my front door, and it went straight. It was like my, door, my doorway was the dead center of the rainbow, and it went straight. All I have is trees right in front of my, and if you look out my front door, it's nothing but trees. There's no houses across the street. It's just trees, these tall you know, trees, and the rainbow went over. It's a massive rainbow, double rainbow, bright as it could possibly be. And I took a picture and sent it back to him, and I said, you know, I've lived in that neighborhood for 10 years. I've never seen one rainbow, much less a double rainbow, and it never centered directly over my door. And the ladies had just gotten back from the retreat, and I said, you guys really did bring the Holy Spirit back. And I can tell that, uh, you know, that you know, God, God is, he makes these promises to us, Right? But his power, and I thought, and, I, and, I, and we were talking about there, I said, you know, when the world sees this, this is nothing but a rainbow. Or it should be more. When we see it, we see the power of God. We're like Elihu or Job. We hear the thunder and we hear his power. We see the lightning bolts and we understand they're powerful. When I lived in Charlotte, I was telling the girls on the way in, we had a, uh, some neighbors of my uh, in-laws. A lightning bolt as big as my... Uh, car went through their house while they weren't there and, and just burn it to the ground. God has a lot of power, doesn't he? I know other people would call that mother nature. But when God sent the plagues against Pharaoh, it was not mother nature turning the Nile into blood, sending frogs, sending locusts, sending hailstones that would kill anything and wipe out all the crops. That was not Mother Nature, that was the God of nature. His power. He displays His power. But why would He display His power? One of His purposes is that people would see His power, recognize that He's an irresistible force, and call upon His great name. Not use His name as a swear word, as many people do, which is one of the commandments. One that God will not hold them guiltless who takes His name in vain. But one of his purposes is that mankind would see Niagara Falls and realize there must be a God. That they would look up into the heavens and realize with all that power, with stars that make ours look so minuscule, there must be a God. When you see the, you know, just the amazing things that are in nature, there must be a God. We were walk, my wife and I were walking the other morning. A lot of times we'll go walking in the morning. And uh, this woodpecker, you know, flutters up to a tree, you know he's got a bug in his mouth, fits it right. You know woodpeckers, they, they actually drill a hole just big enough for the bug to get in but not out. What a terrible condition for the bug, right? <laughs> I can fit in this, but I can't fit out. That's it. And how do they know every time 
to, to pack just enough force, they actually, I, I said, I'm a kind of an analytical thinker anyway. So I look at, the, I look at this situation, I'm like, all right. He has to measure the size and weight instantaneously of the bug. Peck the right size hole. How does he remember where all the holes are? Because they, they, they put them in trees all over the place. I'm feeling like a ladybug today. All right, it's at that tree or something like that, right? And I, and, and I always joke, me and my wife always joke about this stuff because it's our running joke. Every time we see something amazing from God, I always say, isn't evolution neat? <laughs> because you can't help but laugh at the silliness, the absolute foolishness. Paul said that the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. And the wisest people at Princeton and Harvard and Cal Berkeley and all these others that actually propagate the fairy tale of evolution actually would have you believe that some just happenstance, a woodpecker, not only will his beak not get crushed doing it, but actually can do all this, remember every tree, mathematically figure it out, and do it all in a nanosecond. And if that was true, why didn't every other bird figure it out? Right? It's just the power of of God. We see it in everything. Jesus saw it in a flower. He said not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. I love that because I actually, the older I get, I love flowers. And I really love the way they look and you see the unbelievable design. But all of these things, the power of God, this is another purpose of God, that he would display his power in mankind, that he would display his power in the heavens, and that people would revere his great name. And now we see another thing here, though. In verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath, and combines it with his power here, so his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In that verse, we can see another purpose of God, God will display one of the purposes of God in revealing to us the written history of God, but also the continued unfolding history right before our very eyes. God reveals that part of his purpose is that man would understand his wrath. Not experience his wrath, understand it. And when you were a kid, you would rather understand your dad's wrath than experience it, right? Because he could explain to you how it was going to go down. And you could choose to say, that sounds like a description of something I don't want to experience. Or you could say, I'd like to feel that before I really understand. Can I have a little taste of that? And God does give a taste of his wrath that has been poured out as a warning for all of us. You think back in the children of Israel, when Achan, when Achan was killed for his offense, and he was executed, him and his entire family, that's a pretty good outpouring of wrath that speaks to everybody else to say, don't wanna, if God says don't take anything from one of the countries that he gives us, let's not take anything. A bar of gold ain't worth that, right? That these things are given for our warning. The long-suffering, long-suffering of vessels of wrath. You know, the most rebellious, antagonistic people to God, he still is long-suffering towards. 
no matter how wicked, God can be incredibly, incredibly long-suffering and is, not can be, but is, so long-suffering. But finally, those vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. At the end of the day, at the end of time, there really will be a judgment. And God wants man to understand that there will be a reckoning day. There's always a reckoning day. Every decision you make, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he's also going to reap. There really will be a reckoning for everyone that rejects God. Better to not reject him and come to him while the grace is there, while the mercy is there, while the compassion is given, because at the judgment, it's too late. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God, back when we were in the first chapter, you'll remember this, 118, for the wrath of God is revealed currently, present state, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul once again saying there's more than enough evidence of God's mercy. There's more than enough evidence of his compassion. There's more than enough evidence of his power. There's more than enough evidence of his great name. There's more than enough evidence of his wrath. There's more than enough evidence of his long-suffering. Do not try and indict God by your pointing up and saying, well, if you're really a just God, then no one would go to hell. Paul's saying, you can't speak to the potter that way. You're the clay. You simply say, wow, thank you for sending me a lot of information. Remember I said on Sunday, people don't do the things they do because of a lack of information. They do it because they ignore the information. Right? Most of the time, most of the health issues in America, ask any hospital, ask any doctor, most of them are preventable. And most of the time people know, I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do this, but I do it anyway. Some people will, Paul asks the question, some will say, why, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If, he, if he's chosen some to be vessels of wrath, if he's chosen them to be vessels of wrath, is that what you're saying, Paul, that they're chosen to be vessels of wrath? Well, he answers that by saying, how in the world, how are you going to question the Creator? You don't question the Creator, you simply respond in obedience to what you know. See, current, Paul's talking to people that are currently alive, just like, just like all of us are currently alive. This is how you know about free will and grace is always manifested because whoever you're talking to is currently able to discern right from wrong. The book of John tells us he's given us light to every man. Every man, not some men. Now, it is too late for people who have already died. But when Paul's writing to these Romans, they're alive. For them to read it, understand it, and say, yeah, you know, I, I've seen a volcano erupt. That's pretty powerful. I've seen change lives. That's pretty powerful. I've seen Christians willing to be torn apart by lions because they believe in the name of Jesus. That's amazing. Where does that kind of power come from? All of these things, God has given plenty of information, plenty of evidence. And yet, he still sovereignly is involved in saying, these people will be my people. We'll get to that in a minute. 
Paul speaks of Pharaoh, we know that um, in verse 18, where he talks about whom he wills, he hardens. Uh, Paul, without question, speaking to the fact that back in the book of Exodus, which we are in, if you remember back in the earlier chapters, uh, God did harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh, as you know, was a, in his own mind, he was a god. And to the people, he was a god. Not capital G-O-D, but little G-O-D. He, he considered himself a god. The Egyptians considered their pharaohs gods. And, of course, that's what he was taught. And all the, all the pharaohs were considered gods. But as gods, in their own mind, they refused. And Pharaoh of himself, the one that Moses dealt with, uh, refused to surrender to the living God who actually created Pharaoh. Refused to surrender to him. We know that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. How do we know? that? Well, you can go back and read Exodus 7.13, 7.22, 8.15, 8.19, 8.32, and 9.34. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pretty obvious that Pharaoh didn't want any part of God. What this demonstrates is when, when a person hardens their heart and they... At some point, and I don't know when this is, only God knows. At some point, God says to a person, you don't want me, I'll give you your wish. The worst thing a person could possibly wish is spend eternity separated from the God that was offering compassion, love. Look at how many times Moses went to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. More than just let the people go, God wanted Pharaoh to let go of the throne and fall at the feet of the very one that created him, but he wouldn't do it. And so God ultimately hardens Pharaoh's heart. He's God is sovereign. He'll make a decision when he's given enough grace, enough mercy, enough long-suffering, and then that vessel will be eventually given over to the full wrath of God. The demonstration of the long-suffering of God certainly was evident in the life of Pharaoh. He had exhausted his grace at some point, hardened his own heart to the point that God says, I'll go ahead and give your heart over and let it go get so callous that you won't hear my servant Moses, you won't hear from me. Paul speaks a little bit to this concept as well of God giving people over to their own wicked rebellious desires. Remember in, back in Romans chapter 1 as well, verse 28, even as though they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Hmm. They had God in their knowledge, but they refused to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind that they would become even more wicked than they were because God says, all right, that's the, that's the way you want to go. And I, again, God calls and calls and calls, just like with the prodigal son. And we know that judgment is going to happen. It's going to come. It's going to be there. As Hebrews 9.27, as, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. doesn't matter if you're Pharaoh. doesn't matter who you are. 
Praise God for those of us that are saved, we have the judgment seat of Christ <laughs> where we're given rewards. Uh, our, our, our Christian service will be judged, uh, not judged on the merits of salvation. That, that, that is paid for, bought by the blood of Jesus, but all the works we've done in Christ will be judged, and some of my works and some of your works are going to be wood, hay, and stubble because they were done in the flesh. I'm aware of that, that some of mine aren't going to pass the mustard test of God. But some are, and some are going to be gold and, and that opportunity. But that judgment seat, although you do want to, you want to hear the Lord give you a commendation of all that you've done that was not in the flesh, that was done in the Holy Spirit, that's not the judgment that a Pharaoh would experience. That's the great white throne judgment. And the only thing in that judgment you'll hear is, depart from me. You're going to have all your sins accounted for. And there will be degrees of hell. Vessels of wrath where those pot, you know, again, we're all made of dirt at the end of the day. We're all made of dirt. That, but those pots won't can be consumed. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 22. You think of the long-suffering God has shown so many. Think of a modern-day Pharaoh. I was just thinking, uh, a modern-day Pharaoh, a supreme leader for many years, an avowed atheist. He's lorded over his own people with complete authority. When I lived in Miami, the name Fidel Castro was mentioned a lot. He's still alive, I guess we think. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen any. He's still alive as best I know. And there, you know, the, he, I know his health is deteriorating. But for years, years and years, he held the role of supreme authority over all of the island of Cuba. Full power. He's an avowed atheist. He does not believe in God. One way or another, he will soon. Right? He doesn't believe in God. This was a quote from Wayne Smith. He was a U.S. diplomat, and at another time he was chief of mission to Cuba from 1979-1982. He said, Castro was convinced that he was right and that his system was good for the people. Thus, anyone who stood against the revolution also stood against the Cuban people, and that, in Castro's eyes, was simply unacceptable. Had people killed, thrown in jail, He's a, he's a little G-O-D, a little God in his own mind. Now, would God extend mercy to Fidel Castro if he cried out today for salvation? I believe he would. Why? He's still alive. He's still alive. The thief on the cross, it doesn't, you know, I, and as a matter of fact, as I was thinking about Fidel Castro, I started praying for him. Because the fact that he's still alive, God can send somebody if he's near death or something. Does he deserve eternal life? No. Do I deserve eternal life? No. Do you deserve eternal life? No. But if he's still alive and he could still hear the voice of God cry out one more time, say, repent, what a testimony that would be, wouldn't it? If one of the world's dictators of our time, a pharaoh of our day, a wicked and evil life that he's lived would actually turn to Christ. God would give that mercy and compassion. 
that is his purpose to show long-suffering, to show mercy. But the clock is ticking for everyone, isn't it? All of us are closer to our own appointment with death than when we walked in here tonight. The clock is ticking for everyone. And the pharaohs and those who refuse God ultimately die, and they prove again and again that they are vessels of clay just like everybody else. They're not more special. God's not a respecter of person. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, they all died, and and all their empires have vanished with them, haven't they? Some not immediately, but over time, none of their empires exist. Kim Jong-il, he ruled North Korea from 1994 to 2011. His title also was Supreme Leader. called him Supreme Father. These different titles. Tormenting his own people, literally tormenting his own people for years. But God claimed his life in 2011. And I know that Kim Jong-il believes in God now. There's no question about it. Everyone dies, believes in God. Everyone then agrees. You remember, remember the quote about Fidel Castro? He thought he was right. Pharaoh thought he was right. But when everyone sees God or experiences now either his good pleasure or his wrath, they will know God was right. And why did I ever think I could talk back to the potter Paul's like, don't talk back to the potter. Submit to the potter. Submit to it. I told you I I like uh, flowers now. Uh, The older I get, uh, I like to plant them. I'm getting better at not killing them, which is an amazing thing. I don't know if I'm just getting wiser. But but I noticed that as delicate as flowers are, when you plant flowers, if you plant them right, I I can take the hose, and I I realize that some of them them need more water than others. So I'll just kind of put this light. And... Even when they're these delicate little like petunias and stuff, they will they will fall over like they're dead when you're watering them. They they it's almost like they they bow down, but when they bow down, it's almost like the flowers humble themselves. And this is just some strange observation on my part. Um, <laughs> they they just completely. I'm like I'm I must be killing them because of the way they fall down. But they bow down and they like receive the rain or the water. You come back, like, literally sometimes like 30 minutes later, and they have fully stood and have drank it in. And really, isn't that a picture of the way God, if we would humble ourselves, as James says, if we would humble ourselves, he will lift us up. And then, why don't he lift us up? But if it's like 102 in the shade, he would pour refreshing water not only on us, but down to our roots and fill it up, and then put the sunlight of God, and then lift us back up. But we would have to be like the flowers, be willing to say, till you're done, I'm just going to fall down at your feet and drink it in. And that's what God wants us as the vessels of clay to not question him but submit to him and understand that his his purpose is to magnify his name it's to to proclaim his power but also to show compassion and mercy and that even god says even when i've shown my wrath it should be turning people to me not turning people away again i i I monitor every now and then i'll see uh, another report from samaritan's purse about people that got saved with the the tornadoes of Oklahoma, and they have a running total of the number of people that got saved. And it's really cool to see that a lot of people realized, wow, 
God's power is irresistible rather than me continue to kind of say, well, I'm not sure, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Why don't I just surrender to him? Because eventually, as Jesus said, or the scriptures say of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Now, if every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess, why not do it now? Every knee. Not, there's no single person. Nobody will not bow the knee. Everyone will, so why not now? That's God's purpose. We see his plan here as well. I know purpose and plan are, are quite connected, but he has a plan, verse 23, that he, may make, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. God's ultimate plan as Jesus said, he was going to go and to make and prepare a place that we would be with him. The plan of God is that the sons and daughters of God, as they say, yes, Lord, and they receive mercy, they receive the grace, they receive the blood of Jesus, they receive salvation, that God would then lavish his mercy eternally on those that would be his sons and his daughters as you and I are, and he would call us his people. Sam refers to uh, his fellow Israelites as his peeps. You could say it that way too, I guess. But uh, his people. God's people. The people of God. What do we see here about God's unfolding plan? Verse 24, even us whom he has called. Paul says, look, us, me, a former Pharisee and persecutor of the church. I'm speaking as Paul for a second. Me, you, some of you Romans that were formerly uh, pagans and worshipped other gods, but us, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, writing to those in Rome that were Gentiles. There was Jews, of course, and Gentiles in the church there. But he says the plan of God was not only to redeem those of the bloodline of Abraham, but also of the Gentiles. That God's plan, that he would make known the riches of his mercy, which were prepared before time began on both Jews and Gentiles through Messiah. It would be through the Messiah. This mercy would so often, though, even going back, if you look through all the history of Israel, you look through the, and as I already mentioned, the Noahic Flood, it's always, it seems, a remnant. And that remnant is, is mentioned here, that there would be a remnant. There's a small number of people in verse 25. Though Israel, the number of the children of Israel will be this, as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Many are called, but few are chosen. God calls the world... So love the world. Come, all you are thirsty, but not everybody's willing to come. You know, Noah was, took a long time for him and his sons to, to build the ark. All aboard, but everyone mocked. Ah, the guy, you know, if there is a God, if there is a God, we've never seen rain, blah, you know, whatever, you know. Israel, oftentimes a small remnant each time. Most of the people would choose false gods and fall away 
a small number. Look at it in the United States today. The gospel's available in this country. You could, re- you could have the gospel on your, on your iPhone, your Droid, thousands of books, Kindle, Nook. You could have in your house, I don't know how many Bibles. You could have the gospel anyway. You could, right now, from now until the end of the year, you could listen to a different pastor preach the gospel, and, and these would be solid teachings from all over the United States. And a lot of people not interested. God calling many, but only a remnant, a smaller number that say, I want to follow Christ. I want to be saved. I want to be part of the people of God. People don't want God's acceptance for the most part. They want other people's acceptance. Right? And I sent out uh, sent a uh, verse to the elders earlier today, and and uh, Luke chapter I think it's Luke sixteen Luke sixteen fifteen. Um, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to the Lord. Think about that. What is hi- Jesus said this by the way? That's red letter stuff. Words of Jesus. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Think about all the things that are highly esteemed among men. And Jesus said the Father is not interested in any of what they think is important. What they think is really, really urgent. Jesus like, what is urgent to the Father is these things that speak to repentance. All these other things are an abomination to the Lord. But a remnant a small number of people who would be called the beloved. This mercy given to this small remnant. You still might would say, well, remnant? Is, is that fair? Shouldn't God have done more to reach the rest of the people so the remnant would not be a remnant, but it would be a massive, huge, everyone all in, or almost everyone all in? Remember that God is fair to all. He's more than fair in righteously judging sin and rebellion. Every single time, every single time sin and rebellion is judged, both on the earth and, of course, the great white throne judgment, God will be more than fair in judging sin and rebellion. He's always fair there. But he's magnificently beyond fair when he gives mercy to any of us. That makes sense? It's always fair. No matter what God does is just. Another way of thinking is just. It's always just when God deals with sin, when God deals with sinners. But it's his magnificent compassion, mercy, beyond our comprehension. See that? It's beyond our comprehension that he would actually lavish mercy on any of us. And all we can really do is respond to it and say, yes, Lord. I don't know how I even came to understand this. I know you sovereignly called me, but I also know you sovereignly gave me free will, and I don't have any pride. I don't know about you. I don't have any pride about free will. 
I know this is a point of contention in the body of Christ. Those that are Calvinist versus Armenian, you know, then you, you're prideful because you chose. No, no I, I didn't choose free will. God gave it to me. So I have no pride about it. How about you? God gave me free will. I, I, I couldn't create it. I couldn't, I couldn't give light to myself. God gives light to every man. I know that God gave me light. I know I didn't give myself the light. But at some level, he loves people enough to let them choose. But also, he sovereignly chooses them too, as we've talked about the last three weeks. And say, well, I can't get my head around that. Well, join the club. I can't get my head around it either. The fact that some things are... He does things too wonderful for us to comprehend. God's sovereign giving of free will, it doesn't negate, it doesn't negate his purposeful choosing of a people from all tribes, from all tongues, from all nations. It doesn't negate that he will choose a people to be his own. Right? We, we cannot escape that God chose Abraham, as I said last week. He could have chose lots of other men. Right? But he chose Abraham. Abraham wasn't, Abraham didn't have a sign that says, choose me to be Jewish. I want to be Jewish. He wouldn't have made, he wouldn't have known how to make the word up. It didn't exist. God says, I choose you. You will now be, the whole Jewish comes from Judah or Jude. But God says, I will make of you a great nation. I know you weren't trying to be a nation. You were fairly happy in Ur, minding your own business there, but I chose you. But when I chose you, you yielded to my voice, unlike Pharaoh, who wouldn't yield to the voice of God. And his plan was to send forth the Messiah that would save the remnant. I thank God for a remnant, amen? That he always has a remnant. At the cross, there wasn't many people. There wasn't many people that stood by Jesus. Most fell away, didn't really stay with him. But he had a remnant there. And that little remnant took the gospel to the four corners of the earth, didn't it? And you and I are here today. That's why I love to read the writings of the remnant before us, 1800s, 1700s, all the way back, because each of the little remnant passed it on to another little remnant and continue not that any of us wanted to be a remnant we would love to see all come and god desires that all be saved we close with his placement and there's not much i want to say about this anyway i think the poignancy of this last point is in its simplicity paul speaks of the fact that the the israelites the jewish people they have tried to attain righteousness through the law. And they failed miserably. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to be perfect. Right? <laughs> you fail a lot, don't you? Grace is God's perfection given to us. Works is us trying to prove we can be perfect and it doesn't work. The Ten Commandments, uh, they were a tutor, as Paul said, given to show that you couldn't keep the law, even though you still were required to keep it. At the one hand, you're required to keep the Ten Commandments. On the other hand, God knows you can't. 
And he sent Jesus, who fulfilled every jot and tittle. He perfectly fulfilled the commandments. But they had, over the years, over the many years, they had developed a lot of little laws and commandments that were the, actually, they weren't even the the commandments that God originally gave. They were the commandments of men. And men are good at keeping the commandments of men. They have a hard time keeping the commandments of God, but pretty good at keeping the commandments of men. Right? I mean, you'll see this with uh, the incredible ornate uh, of secret societies and things like the Freemasons and all these kind of things. I mean, they'll keep every little... I mean, like that stuff is worth anything. But God desires righteousness. And yet, since we can't produce righteousness, you have to actually humble yourself like the uh, leper or like the woman with the issue of blood or like all the different people that Jesus touched throughout his ministry. You have to to humble yourself and say, I can't do this. I'm not the fine, upstanding Pharisee neighbor that I claim to be. I actually have some wicked thoughts, some wicked actions, some wicked deeds. I've broken all the commandments and say, Jesus, I need your righteousness. But that's not the way Jesus was received. As it is written, behold, I lay lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. God, in his placement, he places his son... Where did he place Jesus? He placed him right in Zion, right in Jerusalem is where he died. But of course, his ministry, majority of it in Galilee, but all throughout Israel, God placed his son in the very land that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were also in. He places his son, his only begotten son, in the presence of Israel. Well, why? Well, because Jesus comes first to the household of Israel. Israel is still... God's chosen people. We can never forget that. And again, because we go through these next chapters, you know, Paul, yes, there is a seed of Abraham that includes Gentiles, but we'll see as we get a little further that we're grafted in. God will never forget his chosen people. He'll not forget that he promised a nation state as well as a spiritual state. Zechariah 2.8, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. He is still, as he said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 8.11. Jesus, again, reminding that God does first and foremost reach to his own people, but he reaches to the world through them, when he says, and I say to you that many will come from the east and west, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus is telling them they will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you look forward to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? To sit down with them? Now, Jesus will make them pale in comparison, but it's noteworthy that Jesus mentions that we will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because they, the children of Israel, are still God's chosen people. They're still the apple of his eye even though the vast majority have stumbled over Jesus instead of latching on to Jesus. The rock of offense. Instead of clinging to the rock and building on the rock, 
They've stumbled past the rock, to the side of the rock, rejected the rock, and this rock of offense is still there. Whoever believes, it's, just, it's amazing that the simplicity of our salvation is belief. Whoever believes on him, believes on him. This, this is too much for some people. I've met people that are devout that cannot accept that. You ever met people like that? They cannot accept that you simply have to believe by faith in the name of Jesus. I've got to do something. I need to stand at the wailing wall for hours. And then God will be pleased. You can't earn God's favor. You accept his son. I don't want a savior that had to be crucified. What kind of king is that? You know that a lot of the Greeks and Romans, that was offensive to them. Because in their gods, you ever seen like Thor or Jupiter? They don't die on crosses. They have great power. And that's a problem for many religions. Uh, Islam is the same way. They, they do not believe that any god would actually die on a cross. That's offensive. He's the rock of offense. His death is offensive. His blood is offensive. His words of condemnation to the Pharisees were offensive. Everything he did was offensive. Of course, you wouldn't want to look at the cross. Even us, we wouldn't have wanted to look at the cross. It would be disgusting. And yet we cling to it, amen? God placed his son, the rock of Christ. He's a refuge for all who call upon his name. Yes, he's a stumbling block to those who reject him, but to those of us who cling to him and fall upon the rock, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Amen?